Well, it was in 1961 that A.W. Tozer wrote a sentence in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. And the words that Tozer wrote would literally reverberate through church history. They are words that were written five years before my birth, words that have influenced me most of my adult life. Tozer said this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I'm sure that you would agree with me that throughout redemptive history, the name of God has been maligned and misrepresented. The name of God has been uh, through the mud as men and women seek to uh, compromise who he is and what he represents. But I think I can safely say that in the last 50 years, there has come no other greater time throughout the history of the church where God's name has been more maligned and mocked and misrepresented than in the last 50 years. The views of God are various, and we have talked about some of those views in this study. But suffice it to say, God continues to this day, even in the church, to be misrepresented. I hear it in sermons. I read it in magazines. I read it in books that under the, the, the banner of Christian publishing. And God is not glorified when his name is caricatured or compromised or misrepresented. It's hard to believe that 21 weeks ago, we embarked on a series together where we strive to plunge into the depths of a study on the attributes of God. It is J.I. Packer who reminds us of the importance of such a study. Dr. Packer says, quote, disregard the study of God. And you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way, you can waste your life and lose your soul. And I think Packer represents a whole host of people all around the world, even people who name the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who simply refuse to study the being of God. We have endeavored in our series to think biblically about God. There's no other way to do it, is there not? I encourage you early on in this study to, to cling to, to embrace what I have labeled the ABCs of theology. A, to always distinguish between the creator and the creature. And I hope that is something that has been etched into your mind, the, the notion that we must always distinguish God is God and we are not. Letter B, to banish idolatrous thoughts about God, to banish idolatrous thoughts about God. When something about God's character does not line up, when you hear something proclaimed about God that is not taught in Scripture, there's only one thing we can do with such a thought. We banish those idolatrous thoughts. If I told you about the many conversations that I was in many years ago when the book The Shack was published, it would make your skin crawl. 
Because within the pages of the shack, as I have already shared with you several weeks ago, there are idolatrous thoughts concerning the nature of God. And when you banish those idolatrous thoughts, that is not popular with people who like the storyline. Letter C, I've encouraged you to commit, to commit to thinking biblically about God. We commit to embrace what the scripture teaches us about the nature and the being of God. And as Steve said earlier during the call to worship, the way we view God literally affects everything. The way we view God influences the way we parent our children. It influences our work ethic. It influences the way we relate to our spouse The way we view God influences the way we worship. Indeed, the way we view God influences the very way that we live our lives. Now, we have seen throughout the last 21 weeks, we have seen many things about the the essence of God, the, the character of God, the attributes of God. We have seen that God is one, that the one God reveals himself in three persons. In fact, in our doctrinal statement, it reads as follows, that God eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They execute distinct but harmonious roles in creation, providence, redemption, and consummation. They are equal in nature, attributes, and perfections. The holy triune God is worthy of our worship, confidence, and obedience. We have learned together that God ordains everything that comes to pass. We have learned that God is the God of aseity. Do you remember that attribute? That God is a God of self-existence. That he literally finds his existence In himself, we have learned that God is a God of immutability, that he is immutable in his essence. He is immutable in his attributes. He is immutable in his counsel, and he is immutable in his plans and purposes. We have seen that God is infinite, that God is eternal, that he is powerful, that he is all-knowing, that he is present everywhere. We have learned that our God is a God of of utter transcendence, that he is high and lifted up, but he is also a God who meets with his people. He is a God of eminence. Isaiah 57, 15 says, For this, thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. All those things speak of transcendence. But then verse 15 says, And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. We've seen that God is truth. God is good. God is love. God is faithful. He is gracious. He is a God of mercy that he is righteous. And Steve, I love the way you said long suffering. It's the way my grandfather used to say it. He is long suffering. Our God is holy. Our God is a God of wrath. He is a God who is sovereign. And in the last week, and you would not believe some of the discussions that I got in, our God is the happiest being anywhere in the cosmos. He is a happy God. And today, I want you to see how things connect. You know, I have a good friend who was in a church that I served in several years ago. 
And I remember he's, he's become one of my best friends in the whole world. And I remember the first time he came up to me and he said, Dave, he says, I, I must confess that for, for a long time, I, I would listen to you in your classes. I would listen to you as you would preach. And I'll admit, I, I just didn't get it. But one day, he said, I, I began to connect the dots. And I would pray that you would be similar to my friend Don today, that you would say, aha, I think I'm beginning to connect the dots. You know, after spending five months pouring over the attributes of God, it should not surprise you to hear the lament of A.W. Pink, who said, quote, how vastly different is the God of Scripture from the God of the average pulpit. As we continue our study this morning, I want to draw your attention to the glory of God. I want you to see the big picture of God's glory as it unfolds before us in the pages of Scripture. And I've had to really discipline myself to focus on the entirety of Scripture, which becomes a much more difficult task in preaching. Uh, I'll be honest with you, the, the place my heart and mind gravitated to was Romans chapter 11, verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever and ever, amen. And the reason I discipline myself to steer clear from that passage is I, I want to save that passage. Because if the Lord should tarry, I cannot wait for us as a church family to study in its entirety the book of Romans, chapter 1 to chapter 16. And when we get to chapter 11, verse 36, we will cover those particular verses. Today, instead of a, an exposition from a particular passage of Scripture, I want to do a broad scope, a shotgun approach, if you will, as we look at a topical uh, approach to the glory of God. I want to invite you to join me in prayer and ask that God would do a wonderful thing in our midst together today. Will you pray with me? Father, what a journey it has been as we have explored uh, your attributes. And indeed, we have only scratched the surface. 20 weeks pales in comparison to millions and millions and millions of years where your people We'll spend all eternity with you on the new earth. We look forward to that day, but until that day, we continue to learn. We continue to grow. We continue to wrestle. And I pray as we explore your glory today, a subject that could also take us into the future forever and ever. Give us just a, a brief glimpse at your glory. I pray that you would encourage your people. I pray that you would strengthen your people. God, if anyone is discouraged or disheartened today, I pray that uh, the words that we explore in the Bible would be of comfort, would be a source of strength, that you would encourage us as your people. First in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Normally, if I'm not feeling well, I fake it. Uh, but and I actually feel great outside the fact I can't breathe. Uh, does anyone have asthma over the last several days? I don't know what the deal is. So <clears throat> if I appear to get choked up, it's not because I'm emotional. Well, it might be. I don't know. Uh, but uh, if I'm laboring to breathe, you'll you'll know what's happening. If I pass out, Chris, you can just come and just wheel me to the cemetery and everything will be good. <sighs> the glory of God. Let's begin with a definition. Defining the glory of God. I, I will never forget the day 
I should say the days where I read a book by Jonathan Edwards, and I have actually read it many times since that day. It's a book that riveted my attention on the glory of God. It actually revolutionized my life. The title of the book is A Dissertation Concerning the End for Which God Created the World. As I opened the pages of that book, I had no idea what was about to change my life as a Christian person. Here's one line from the book. Edward says, The great end of God's works, which is so variously expressed in Scripture, is indeed one. That's capital O, capital N, capital E. And is most properly and comprehensively called the glory of God. In the Old Testament, the word glory comes from the Hebrew word kabod. And that word kabod literally means to be heavy. It means to be weighty. The, the Hebrew term implies honor or splendor or reverence. And I think before we go any further, we should confess together that we should admit together that as Christians in the 21st century, I think we struggle with this. I think we struggle with not only giving God the glory he deserves. I think we struggle in the area of reverence. I remember it was several years ago as I served with my good friend Wayne Pickens at First Baptist Church in LaGrande, we were to celebrate Reformation Sunday. And one of the things that I had encouraged is, as we celebrated uh, the great truths of the Protestant Reformation, most notably the gospel on October 31st, that we would dim the lights. I remember playing, I don't know if it was a mistake or not, but I remember looking back and, and playing Gregorian chant music. We had candles all over the, the auditorium, and we had encouraged the people of God to, to enter into a time of worship prior to the service. And I remember that I was perplexed because people were almost refusing to go into the sanctuary. They could tell something was different. They could tell that something had changed. And instead of walking into this environment where the, the lights were low and the Gregorian chant was playing and the candles were lit, it was more comfortable to be in the narthex. And I think that is indicative of our Christian lives, is it not? We are more comfortable engaging in chit-chat. It's far more easy for me to, to tell Harry a joke and have Harry laugh at my joke. It's easier for me to listen to you tell me a funny story or talk to me about your favorite football team. It's different, however, when we enter into a time of worship and we give God the glory that he deserves. One theologian says it like this, the glory of God is not exactly an attribute of his being, but rather describes the unmatched honor that should be given to God by everything in the universe. In another sense, God's glory means the bright light that surrounds God's presence. That is kabod. The Hebrew word kabod means to be heavy. It conveys the idea that the one possessing the glory, that is God, is filled with riches, is overflowing with power and position. 
And then there's a New Testament term. The New Testament term for glory is the, the little Greek word doxa. And many of you are familiar with that word. Some of you, if you had it your way, would sing the doxology every week. I know some of you. I know some of you well, and you love the doxology. Well, doxa means brightness. It means shining. It means amazing might, a, a demonstration of power. It means praise or honor or greatness. And so we take these two words, these, these definitions of, of glory, kabod and doxa, and we see the wonderful being that our God is. I want to take a majority of our time this morning to describe now God's glory. Several times I have referred to you the, the question and the answer from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And that is question number one. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's easy enough. But then we would ask a follow-up question. What then is the chief end of God? The answer is the chief end of God is to glorify himself and to enjoy himself forever. To do any less would make God an idolater. And so I want to ask in the time that we have, how does God glorify himself? What does it look like? What is the, the description of his glory? And would have you to notice at least six aspects of his glory. And I would tell you, this is by no means comprehensive this morning. And so the first of the six will go like this. Number one, God creates all things for his glory. God creates all things for his glory. We turn our attention to the very first verse of scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Notice there is no apologetic for the existence of God. The existence of God is assumed. It is assumed. Proverbs 16.4 says that the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Number two, God created and chose Israel for his glory. He created and chose Israel for his glory. One of my best friends, a, a very faithful and godly man, was pastoring a church in San Diego County. And he received a call from a woman. And the woman said, Pastor, I'm, I'm thinking about coming to your church, but I have a few questions I would like to pose before I commit to coming for the first time. And he said, I'd be happy to, to answer any questions you have. And she said, well, really, only, I only have one. Does your church believe in predestination? Because if they do, that's not the church for me. And my friend responded with a great deal of biblical wisdom. He said, what you have to understand is that not only does our church believe in predestination, the Bible teaches predestination from cover to cover. And she, she disagreed, of course. And my friend put it like this. He said, God chose Israel. He did not choose the Amalekites. He did not choose the Babylonians. He did not choose the Hittites. He did not choose any other people group. God set his affection on whom? Israel. And so we see that God created and chose Israel for his glory. Isaiah chapter 43 says this, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, 
whom I formed and made. Jonathan Edwards treats Isaiah chapter 43 as follows. He says, and this is where I would trust that you begin to to connect the dots. That you would move not only over the last 19 or 20 weeks, but you would remember the main idea from last week. That who is the most happy being in all the cosmos? It's our creator, God. Notice what Edward says. It is wholly a promise of a future. Great and wonderful work of God's power and grace. Delivering his people from all misery and making them exceedingly happy. And then the end of all or the sum of God's design in all is declared to be God's own glory. Edwards continues, all the preceding promises are plainly mentioned as so many parts or the great and exceeding happiness of God's people. And God's glory is mentioned as the sum of his design in this happiness. And so one of the things that I want you to wrestle with today, and it's almost in the background. It's almost behind the veil, if you will. I want you to be considering the importance of the glory of God on the one hand and the happiness of the people of God on the other. And to wrestle with the idea of which is it? Is it the glory of God or is it the happiness of the people of God? I think the answer will be very, very encouraging to you. God created and chose Israel for his glory. He created and chose Israel so that the world would know that he alone is the Savior. Would you open your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 43? I want to take you on a a brief excursion and to show you why these things are not only true, but so very important. In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 11. We read, I, I, the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. Look at Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Come with me to Isaiah 45, verse 21. Isaiah 45, 21. I love to hear the pages of your Bible. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me. A righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. I want you to see that God created and chose Israel so that they would also serve as his witnesses, thus declaring his glory. David Larson says that God had a missionary purpose in electing Israel. You see, this morning, if you struggle with the doctrine of election, uh, perhaps the day is the day when that struggle ceases and There are many reasons for me saying this. Number one is we find the doctrine of election in Scripture. 
Secondly, this is really a preface of where we will go in the months ahead when we continue to walk through the gospel of John. I will be honest that one of the reasons we stepped outside or aside from the gospel of John is because I was looking forward into the future and noticing that we will one day come to John chapter 17. And when we hit John chapter 17 and study the high priestly prayer, it will be absolutely imperative that we have a a biblical sense of the doctrine of predestination as it emerges all throughout that chapter. Here we see that God chooses Israel so that they would serve as witnesses and display his glory. Look at Isaiah chapter 43, verse 12. Isaiah 43, verse 12. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there is no strange God among you. Notice, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Israel was to serve as as, as a witness, they were to be God's emissary. They were to be God's missionaries. And we'll see how that unfolds as we move to the pages of the New Testament. But I also want you to see that God chose Israel, that they would proclaim his praise. Some people ask me, why, why believe in the pre- doctrine of predestination? When we move to the book of Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll do that in a moment, we see that the reason God elects is so that a people would proclaim his glorious name. Isaiah 43, 21, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. And then finally, would you turn a few pages ahead with me to Isaiah chapter 49, verse 26. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 26. We see finally that he created and chose Israel so that the nations would glorify him. Verse 26 says, I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your savior and your redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. There's a third reason or the third explanation of God's glory. And that is that God sent the Messiah. God sent the Messiah so that he, so that God the Father would be glorified. I want you to see this amazing progression as we walk through the pages of Scripture and have you turn to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42. And look with me at verses 6 and 7. And watch the progression as it unfolds. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison of those who sit in darkness. You see, God sent the Messiah. He sent the Lord Jesus Christ to send or extend salvation to all the ends of the earth. You see, God didn't just stop with Israel. Now we see, as we look back in redemptive history, he opens the invitation up and he extends salvation to the ends of the earth. One writer says it like this. It is our unspeakable privilege, Kyle and Kathy. It is our unspeakable privilege 
to be caught up with him in the greatest movement in history, the ingathering of the elect from all the tribes and peoples and nations until the full number of the Gentiles has come in and all Israel is saved and the Son of Man descends with power and great glory as the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the earth, ready? The earth is full of the knowledge of what? His glory. Then the supremacy of Christ will be manifest to all and he will deliver the kingdom of God the Father and God will be all in all. This is why we need to ramp up our efforts in the area of world missions. Why are we so passionate about world missions? Why are we so excited about the Christians? Why are we so excited to see the gospel go forth? Missions exists because worshipers don't. Missions exists because people need to delight in the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Kyle and Kathy have an opportunity to do just that. But I don't want to relegate all of this responsibility to Kyle and Kathy and their family. Is Here we are stuck back in Whatcom County, right? I don't mean that negatively. But here we are, and our, our responsibility is to be emissaries. Our responsibility is to be missionaries. Every Christian is a missionary. Every Christian is the sent one. Some of you will be missionaries in your schools. Some of you will be missionaries when you go to Christian schools, and you will share the gospel to a friend at a Christian school. I was sharing with a man this morning. I read a book a few days ago where a, a gentleman went to Princeton Theological Seminary and got a job at the bookstore. And he was fired for sharing the gospel at the bookstore at Princeton Theological Seminary. He said to the owner of the bookstore, the manager of the bookstore, you're telling me that we can talk about a, a Marxist revolutionary from Argentina, but I can't talk about Jesus. And the manager said, that's exactly what I'm saying. You're fired. You see, God sent the Messiah to reveal the glory of God. We've seen as much as we've studied in the gospel of John. One author says the exaltation of God's glory is the driving force of the gospel. And grace is the pleasure of God to magnify the worth of God by giving sinners the right and the power to delight in God without obscuring the glory of God. Number four. Another description of the glory of God is that God's glory is revealed now in the redemption of the elect. His glory is revealed in the redemption of the elect. And like, a, like an airplane flying over a huge, a huge forest. I want you to look down and see with me the bird's eye view by turning with me to Acts chapter 13. Turn with me to Acts chapter 13, and I want to have you look with me beginning in verse 46. And while you're turning there, you remember the context. Who did Israel, or who did God choose? He chose Israel. But then something very interesting happens in Acts chapter 13, verse 46. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. What happens? Israel, 
those whom God has chosen, is they, they thrust aside the message of the gospel. They reject their Messiah. Look what happens in Acts 13. For the Lord, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you, who is you, the Jews, a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Can you imagine being a Jewish person? And hearing these words, this would be me. I I messed it up. But they didn't see it at the time. Verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, now imagine that you're a Gentile. You know that that you're a, a stranger to the promises, as Ephesians 2 says. You're without hope. You're without God. You're on the fast track to hell. Now you see, when the Gentiles heard this, they said... We don't like predestination. That's not what the text says. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing, glorifying in the word of the Lord. And as many were appointed to eternal life, believed. You ask, why does God predestine some and why does he pass over others? Ephesians chapter 1 says this. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, listen, to the praise of his glorious grace. You ask, why does God predestine, pastor? Why did, why did God elect some but pass over others? None of us have all the answers. But one thing we do know is that the reason God chooses some and passes over others is he does it to the praise of his glorious grace. Ephesians 1.12 so says, So that we were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Verse 14 says, Who is the inheritance or the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Why? To the praise of his glory. You see, the most important thing in the universe is the glory of God. Number five, I want you to see that God now will be glorified during the days of the millennial kingdom. In my mind, it doesn't matter at this point where you stand, whether you're an all-millennial thinker or a post-millennial thinker or a pre-millennial thinker. And some of you say, I don't know anything about any of that. What we do need to know is this, that God will be glorified during the days of the millennial kingdom. The final goal of redemptive history is the establishment of God's kingdom where Jesus rules and reigns. With the coming of our Messiah, with the coming of Jesus, we recognize that the kingdom is already and not yet. Has the kingdom come? Yes, but not in its fullness. The kingdom is already, but not yet. But in the days of the millennial kingdom, all people will see the glory of God. Zechariah 14.9 says, The Lord will be king over all the earth. I don't know about you. But yesterday, when I got the message on my phone that said Justice Scalia is dead, my heart sank. Anyone with me? And I thought, we are in deep trouble. A man of integrity. A man who does exactly what he is called to do. As a Supreme Court justice, he does not see the Constitution as a living document. 
he interprets it as the founding fathers originally meant for every justice to do. But I had to turn my attention to not only the present, but also the future. And remember that one day the Lord Jesus Christ will rule throughout all the earth. All the peoples will see the glory of God. Isaiah 66 says, For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all the nations and the tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. Finally, move from the millennium to the eternal state. That is, the days of the new Jerusalem. In Revelation 21, we see that in those days it will shine with the glory of God. The glory of God, Scripture says, will give light to that city. One writer says, heaven will be never-ending, ever-increasing discovery of more and more of God's glory with greater and ever-greater joy in him. Let's stop right there. What is this writer suggesting? That we will be happy in heaven, connecting the dots from last week, and our happiness Our joy, and those are synonymous, our happiness, our joy will increase unto all eternity. Is anyone ready for that day? Oh boy. Oh boy. There will be no more text messages that make your heart sink. There will be no more calls saying your loved one has cancer. There will be no more more pain. There will be no more suffering as the glory of God will rule. This writer continues, if God's glory and our joy in him are one, and yet we are not infinite as he is, then our union with him and the all-satisfying experience of his glory can never be complete, but must be increasing with intimacy and intensity forever and ever. I'm adding now, and ever and ever and ever. That is to say, We will grow in our holiness. We will grow in our happiness unto all eternity as we walk with our Savior on the new earth. How is it that one ends a message on the glory of God? On what note shall I end? I have no idea. But I want to draw this to a conclusion by posing a very important question. How does the magnificent reality of the glory of God impact our lives right now. We've talked about our days on the new earth. We've talked about the time when the Lord Jesus would rule throughout all the earth. But how does the glory of God affect us right now? I want to begin with 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, that says, Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. You say, what does it mean? It means whether you run the base paths, whether you write a paper, whether you throw the football, whether you are involved in child care, whether you parent, whether you fix a computer, whether you help a patient, whether you fix a car, if you manage people, if you're a housewife, if you're a child, in that, whatever you do, you do all to the glory of God. I think I've shared about my good friend in LeGrand who says to me, uh, Pastor Dave, I get up every morning and I have two cups, not three, but two cups All to the glory of God. I drink my coffee to the glory of God. I tell you, that preaches, does it not? Drink coffee to the glory of God. Notice some steps of application as we conclude. Number one, the glory of God impacts the way I live my life. 
As 1 Corinthians 10.31 tells us, every step, every word, every action, every decision, everything should be done for the glory of God. Number two, the glory of God impacts the way I spend my money. You will be hearing from the financial ministry action team in the days ahead. And there are exciting things on the horizon at Christ Fellowship. And you will also be hearing some things from this pulpit about God's views on money. Suffice it to say, for our purposes now, the glory of God impacts the way I spend my money. When I focus on God's glory, the kingdom priorities extinguish all the other things that capture our attention. Number three. The glory of God gives me reason to be filled with joy and hope. Romans 5 says this, Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice, listen, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Are you beginning to put the pieces together? Are you beginning to link this together? We rejoice. That's joy. That's happiness in the hope of the glory of God. Finally, the glory of God motivates me to take the gospel to the nations. Some of you will do that in different ways. Some of you will take the gospel to the nations by praying for missionaries who were sent. Others of you will say, I can pray and I can also give. I will give of my my resources. I'll give of my time. I'll give of my talent. But I will also give of my treasures. I will give my money so that the nations would be glad and find their joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of the book of Acts, Acts 28, 28, we read this. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. We learn that in Acts 13, where the Jews turned aside the message of the gospel. They rejected their Messiah. And so God opens it up. He opens it up to the Gentiles. And verse 28 of Acts 28 says that it's been sent to the Gentiles. And I love these three words. They will listen. They will listen. I want to close this morning by showing, and it's a rather lengthy video clip, so um, hang in there with me, but um, I think you're going to really be encouraged by it. Several years ago, New Tribes Missions sent um, a group of missionaries to uh, Papua New Guinea. They sent some missionaries to Papua New Guinea to share the message of the gospel. And this will be brand new for many of you where, where evangelism didn't happen on the first day where the teacher would stand before a couple hundred people in this tribe, the Mook people. And he would begin in the Old Testament and who began to tell the stories of the Old Testament. He would share about the the Messiah that would one day come to, to die for a people and to secure a people for his own possession. And the Mook people, they, they loved this Messiah. They were ready for this Messiah to come. And then as you'll see in the video, They reenact the crucifixion where their hero, the Messiah, is murdered. I want you to watch not only the reaction of the people, but I want you to see what happens when the word of God is shared with an unreached people group and to watch 
the manifestation of the glory of God. And this is just a, a microcosm of God's intentions throughout all the earth. Let's watch it together. Before we could start teaching, we had to prepare Bible lessons. Our tribal language helper, who was not a believer at that time, was the key to getting the proper Bible terminology we needed. Even before we started to teach, the Mok seemed to sense a wonderful message was coming. When the teaching finally started, the entire village of 310 people gathered. We never mentioned Jesus Christ until after two months of teaching Old Testament foundational stories. The first day, we began by showing them a map of their village. Then we showed them where the surrounding Moke villages were located on that map. From this point, we explained to them progressively where they were located in relationship to the neighboring tribal groups, where in the province they were located, where the province was located in the country of Papua New Guinea, and where Papua New Guinea was in relationship to Australia, Japan, United States, and Israel. Then we explained how the Bible, God's talk, many years ago had come from Israel to Europe and then around the world and was now coming to them, the Mok people. In the second lesson, we discussed how different people groups believed they arrived here on this earth. The Mok people believed they were created by two different birds. When we told them that some people in our country believed they evolved from an ape-like creature, they said, They're stupid. <laughs> we asked them, Out of all of these beliefs, which one is correct? And they said, We don't know. Then we told them, This is why God has given His written word to mankind, and it never changes. Starting with God, we explained what He is like, His attributes. Then we told them about Satan and his fallen angels. The Mok felt that hell is a fitting place for Satan and that God was right in preparing it for him and his demons. From there, we taught them about creation and Adam and Eve and man's choice to sin. We explained how God promised a Savior who would someday come to deliver us from sin. Other Old Testament stories followed in which we emphasize God's greatness and grace man's lostness in sin and helpless condition, and God's provision of a blood sacrifice through the killing of a lamb. Often we use drama to help them understand what we were teaching. When we told how God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, it presented a dilemma. Abraham was obviously a godly man, so he would obey God. But it was through Isaac that the Savior of the world was promised to come. I knew that somehow Abraham would obey, but God must save Isaac's life, perhaps with a substitute lamb. Before we finish the story, four different men individually suggested that Abraham would obey God, but God would somehow intervene and save Isaac's life by providing a substitute lamb. 
They developed a sincere reverence of God and feared daily that God might rightly destroy them because of their sin. They said, We are just like those people in Sodom and Gomorrah. For two months, we taught key Old Testament stories chronologically before we finally introduced Jesus Christ as the Savior born as a babe in this world. As we studied the life of Christ, they fell in love with Him and Jesus became the Moke hero. They loved Him and they idolized Him. Never during the weeks Mark taught did a villager miss a lesson, though he taught for three months, Monday through Friday, two times a day. Villagers that were sick were brought on makeshift stretchers. And when an expectant mother was near delivery, they arranged for her to be close enough to the meeting to hear the story. The baby arrived in the middle of one of the sessions, but the teaching still went on. At times, the moke were so intense, they stopped eating and would not even sleep. They spent every waking moment discussing the message and re-listening over and over again to the lessons recorded on cassette tapes. This wonderful Jesus was perfect, and he could do anything. He was God. They finally came to explain the betrayal by Judas and the trial of Jesus before Pontius Pilate. Judas's betrayal was upsetting to the most, but they still had faith that somehow Jesus would escape. That was the last story we told them before the gospel presentation. At the end of it, we said, Tomorrow we will finish our talk. The next morning, the people were all gathered before sunrise. I told the story of Jesus appearing before Pilate. The people were very sober. When during our skip they saw Jesus being spit upon, beaten, and finally put to death, they were simply appalled. They were distraught. They couldn't believe what they were seeing. Because the death and shedding of blood is so significant to the gospel story, we had rigged a balloon filled with colored water to be pierced by our designated Roman soldier. It was when they saw the blood that the story began to take on significance. Our explanation and portrayal of Jesus Christ's resurrection was simple, but to them, very powerful. The Savior was alive. Then I went back into the Old Testament stories and beginning with Abel, explained how Jesus was our acceptable sacrifice, just like Abel's sacrifice was accepted by God. When I finally reached the story of Abraham and Isaac, I said to them, Listen, just as a real lamb was substituted for Isaac, so Christ's death and blood has been shed as a substitution for you. At that point, the lights really went on. I could see and hear them responding all over the crowd. I believe! I believe! I believe! I stood in their midst and asked them what they thought. From all over, responses came like this. 
I know I was born in sin. I believe Jesus paid for my sin, that he died in my place. He is my sin bearer. I lived in fear, trying to please the spirits, for I knew no other way to be free from sin. But God in his grace has sent you to us. I've heard it and believe the death and blood of Christ is payment for my sin. I believe it, and God has forgiven me. On that day, almost all the village expressed belief in our Lord Jesus Christ. There was a sense of tremendous relief. The Mok are generally a restrained people, but as the gospel sunk in and new believers sensed the liberation from sin, spontaneous rejoicing broke out. Watch what happened. Village believers stating that he too believes that Christ has paid for his sins. Itao, which means it's true or it's good, it's very true. Village grammar rejoicing that he believes, so does she. Different ones giving testimony as to their belief in Christ as their sin bearer. Mark saying that if they really are believing, then God's word says that their sin is forgiven. Itao, it's good, it's true. Spontaneous rejoicing breaks out. This went on for two and a half hours. Considered your interest in our mission board, and I'm sorry we do not believe you are missionary material. You'll just be too old and possible. Gloria, don't fret yourself so over those people. Consider your health. You have children. Mark and Gloria, as a church, we are standing behind you. We'll pray for you. We'll support you. Go in the Lord's name. people hear about the passion God has for his glory many people assume that the passion for God's glory and my joy are at odds you tell that to the MOOC people you see the display of God's glory and the deepest desire that is to say joy of the human heart are not at odds they are one and the same And that's what you will learn as you continue through your Christian journey. That as you glorify God by enjoying him forever, 
your joy will increase and increase and increase through all eternity. Why are we settling for substitutes by embracing sin and cherishing sin when we can all along delight ourselves in God? He alone is the desire of our hearts. Let's pray as the worship team comes. Uh, Father, thank you for the, the journey over many, many weeks now. Thank you for all that we have learned. And we, uh, we acknowledge this is just the beginning. This is not the end. This is just the beginning for us as a church family. Help us to grow deeper uh, in our study of you and our delight of you. May it lead to a, a worship that is unhindered. God, so many times we um, turn worship into such a, a right-brained event. God, I pray that we would love you with our minds and with our hearts. We would love you with the totality of our beings. God, thank you for what you did among the Moke people. I pray that you would uh, do a good work, not only here at Christ Fellowship. pray that you would do good work as the Christian sins are sent out. God, I pray that we would hear stories of, of your grace that, have, uh, that unfolds before them, even as they're there for a couple of weeks. God, I pray that you would send others from our midst for short-term trips and others who would maybe even commit to serving on the field for the rest of their lives. God, we are excited about the future. Along with the writers of Scripture, we are excited and passionate to see your glory spread throughout all the earth. We know it'll happen one day. We recognize the truthfulness of it. We can't wait for that to, to become a reality. As we close, we worship you in spirit and truth. Amen.